Would you put on a sweater that once belonged to Hitler? Can Chinese zodiac signs predict who's going to be a great scientist? And what happens when you use a training method for dogs to teach doctors? Answers to all those questions on my podcast, Hidden Brain. Just a heads up, the following episode contains language that some listeners may find offensive. You're listening to Code Switch. I'm Shireen Marisol Mirage. And I'm Gene Demby, and it's July 4th. Hey, everybody. Happy Independence Day. Yes. Days off. We like them. Hope y'all enjoying your summer cookouts. Shireen, what do, what do Persian Ricans like yourself? Like, what do y'all, what do y'all eat at cookouts? Well, first of all, we call them barbecues or carne asadas because we're eating carne asada. You call them carne asadas. Yes. And I actually, I don't know if that's something that Persian Ricans cook at cookouts or whatever, but because I grew up in California, that's what we're cooking at cookouts. Okay. And so what's playing at your Persian Rican carne asada? Like you know what's playing? I like it. Cardi B's I Like It is definitely, oh, that's on repeat. That's your song. Oh, that's your song. God, I love that song. I feel like Frankie Beverly and Maze before I let go is like obligatory. Oh. Yes. For like cookouts, you know what I mean? Like, I feel right. like the ancestors would be pissed if you did not play that. <laughs> It's literally the 4th of July today. Mm-hmm. And we're going to do what people should be doing on a summer day if they can. We're going to go outside. Go outside. And to do that, we're going to start with somebody who is very outside. I don't know how outside you are. He's more outside than you are. He's a trailblazer <laughs> of sorts. Can you hear me? I can. This is James. It is. James Edward Mills is a journalist. He teaches at the University of Wisconsin. He has a podcast called The Joy Trip Project, which is about outdoor life. He's an evangelist for people of color in the outdoors. Now, according to the National Park Service in 2016, only about 20 percent of the people who go to the country's national parks are people of color. Hmm. People of color, though, make up about 40% of the country, so you see the disconnect there. Yeah. And we know there are lots of communities of color where people live very much out in those wide-open spaces, but there's still this gap in expectation and experience when it comes to the great outdoors and brown folks. And James wants to know, you know, okay, how do we make the outdoors for everybody? And so there are people who are outdoorsy. That's me. That's you. That's right. Mm -hmm. Shireen, hiking, and what was it? Biking. Joshua Tree. All the things, camping, swimming. Anyway, keep going. It's this you. is not okay. about me for So once. there's you. <laughs> Let me put you in this little bucket over here. That you're like yeah. the the normal, I would say like the the irreasonably outdoorsy person, right? Mm-hmm. And then there's this dude. Like I asked him what kind of outdoor plans he had for the summer. And he said he was actually trying to get his life together for an expedition to the North Pole. So the idea is to um, do what um, is called the last degree. So the, the last degree of latitude from the edge of the polar ice cap to the North Pole. Roughly 60 miles, right? That sounds horrible. <laughs> <laughs> Being you cold, do freezing, freezing cold, and trekking for 60 miles. He said is that what I'm hearing? Basically, you have to eat whatever you want, though, because you got to, like, he's like, just, just straight butter all the time. Just like the I know, but it's stuff. like freezing cold butter. <laughs> it's also true. <laughs> <laughs> it's, 
<laughs> biting down on cold butter. Right. You're not like eating like like in a pan off the pan. It's just like straight <laughs> butter bars. Anyway, he's a Cali dude, right? So he's from L.A. Uh-huh. But he was joking that he moved to Wisconsin because it would be easier for him to ski there. So just to say you were a black man who grew up in L.A. who learned how to ski how do they? Yeah. How does that happen? <laughs> like those yeah, it's, 0. It, 0.001% of the population. Pretty much. Yeah, pretty low. Pretty pretty low. But I, I was I was really lucky. My dad um, was um, the first African-American to be, well, first African-American to graduate from UCLA Law School in 1952. Oh, wow. And he was That was a the, flex. I heard that. Yeah, that was a flex. Yep. yep. And he was a uh, city councilman. He was actually the first African-American to sit on the city council. Oh, even and bigger sat flex. With, wow. So I, I grew up a person of privilege. Okay. You know, and that includes skiing. I mean, I had an experience when I was probably about 14 or 15. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, we ca- we hiked to the to the top of a mountain above treeline, and you know when you're there, I mean there's literally not a not a blade of grass to be had, and so you're way up high, and we're probably about ten to twelve thousand feet. Wow! And I woke up in the middle of the night and I looked up and I saw the Milky Way for the first time. Yeah, you know, no light and pollution, right? No light pollution, mm. right? And no clouds, and I could see satellites <laughs> drifting past. There was. Thousands of shooting stars, and I, and I literally mean thousands. I mean, they didn't stop. I think we might have been in the middle of a meteor shower at the time. And um, then we got, woke up the next morning, and the cloud layer had come through, and the clouds were below us. Wow. So all the other peaks around us looked like islands, and it was like we were on this ocean of clouds. And that was the day, you know, that <laughs> I was done. <laughs> so he caught the bug. And after college, when he was working as, like, a regional sales guy for the North Face, you know, the outdoorsy equipment company, um, yep. he said that the leadership of the company was, like, super, like, mm-hmm. super, super white. And he felt they were leaving money on the table because they were basically ignoring the fact that there were all these young brown kids out there who were wearing outdoor clothes. They were in Timberlands. They were in North Face as streetwear. But they weren't being marketed to, not directly. So he decided to start his own company. I had a bunch of headbands and jackets made up for a company that I called Nubian Ice. Wow, <laughs> not Nubian Ice though. What? Nubian Ice. Wait. And it was it was it was trick. It was it was like it was the the logo was a snowflake with a big map of Africa in the middle of it. Oh my god. And and there's a handful of people who still have those jackets, you know, someplace floating around the world. I should have asked them for a Nubian ice jacket. Anyway, uh, those of you who listen to this podcast and own a Nubian ice jacket, please uh send us a photo. Yeah, please send us a photo. <laughs> that must have been in the 90s. It right? had to be. It had to be. <laughs> like some bright cross colorsy like Nubian ice. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, so you have this universe of like North Face and Patagonia and REI, which are really, really white, just like much of the rest of the outdoor community. And James calls this the adventure gap. And this comes from um, some observation and conversations with people who are PhDs in anthropology. And one of the things that I've seen, if you take a look at redlining, for example, one of the mm-hmm. things that it succeeded in doing was creating de facto urbanization of people of color in this country. You could have a million dollars in cash and not buy a house in a suburb in in many communities in this country if you were black. Right. You know, and so from those suburbs came many of the leaders of 
the outdoor industry. You know, these are these are the guys that literally were able to take the baby boom dollars that their parents were able to accumulate wealth around the purchase of homes after World War II mm-hmm. and send their kids to school. Okay, you know, and in in the creation of these little neighborhoods, you know, where they were accumulating wealth, there was also these wonderful bucolic nature scenes. You know, you got access to woods, you got access to water, and you've got the disposable income and the leisure time to go to the national parks. Right. You know, you can you can take a family vacation at the cabin by the lake. Um, if you're black in this country, you don't have those luxuries. You know, and so if you get multiple generations of that happening, you know, so that you've got um, people of color who don't have uncles, aunts, grandparents that can share that recreational experience and pass it down to their kids. They're not normalizing the behavior. You know, all of a sudden, part of your identity as an African-American in this country is literally not spending time outdoors. Hence, black people don't camp. And, you know, James is like that lack of access to nature. It means that brown folks are not in the conversations about how nature in the outdoors should be managed. But, like, leave aside just the big structural stuff for a second, right? Like, on a more basic elemental level, this is just kind of about being able to move freely through nature, like, and experience the fullness of creation. And James gets wistful when he tells this story of this guy named Charles Madison Crenshaw. He was a Tuskegee Airman and an engineer. And back in the 1960s, he was also the first black person to summit the highest mountain in North America. It used to be called Mount McKinley, but is now known by Denali. Now, what's especially interesting about Charlie is that um, a year earlier, in 1963, on the cover story of Ebony Magazine, that features the March on Washington. There's a feature story on Charlie as a climber. And if you listen to the last paragraph of the I Have a Dream speech, Martin Luther King Jr. says that if America is to be a great nation, this must become true. So let freedom ring from every mountainside. Let freedom ring from the heightening Alleghenies of Pennsylvania. Let freedom ring from the courageous slopes of California. Let freedom ring from the, from the snow-capped Rockies of Colorado. From every mountainside, let freedom ring. Now, it's entirely possible, in fact, probable that he was talking metaphorically. But if you take that literally and you extrapolate that to what mountains that we can climb as people of color in this country, Crenshaw decided that he was going to climb the highest physical point in North America and successfully um, summited Denali seven days after the signing of the Civil Rights Amendment. So he literally personified King's dream within a week of it becoming federal law. That's a great story. It's a great story. There are more and more Charlie Crenshaws, and they're finding each other online now. I mean, if you go on oh, IG, yeah. there's like mad photos of people of color in the mountains and hiking, being like you, um, <laughs> and, and, and finding community. We highlighted the work of Outdoor Afro on our our second podcast. That's right. And that's their whole thing. It's like all about putting photos up on social media of other black folks being out in the outdoors hiking and and doing all that. I mean, there's so many incredible stories that are being told time and time and time and time again now through social media that are normalizing the behavior so that, um, yes, there is an inherent risk of spending time in nature, but there's an inherent risk in everything. But now I think that people of color can understand that they don't need to be alone. James Edward Mills is the author of The New Faces of Adventure, a new spread in Outside Magazine about the rise of POC outdoorsy folks. He's the author of The Adventure Gap, Changing the Face of the Outdoors. He also teaches a summer course at the University of Wisconsin called Outdoors for All. He's the erstwhile CEO of Nubian Ice. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> thank you, man. Appreciate you. Hey, thank you, Gene. It's always a pleasure. Uh, Nubian ice. James was talking a lot about the new generation of outdoor POC adventurers and campers. Mm-hmm. But this is not new for other folks who have been doing this whole summer great outdoors thing for a long, long time. Our teammate Karen Grigsby Bates talked to a couple of people who went to a black summer camp that's almost 100 years old. Black summer camp? What? Yes. Yep. Tell black us about it. summer camp, almost 100 years old. In 2021, it will reach its centennial. Wow. Uh, it's called Camp Atwater. It's in North Brookfield, Massachusetts. That's near Springfield. Mm-hmm. And it's been operated continuously since it was originally started back in 1921. And that's when a number of black families moved into the area from the south. So this this is like a great migration story then? Yep, part of the first wave of more than 6 million black people who were leaving the racial oppression they'd lived under in the South for, I started to say for greater, for perceived greater opportunity in the North, which they hoped was more racially progressive. It's always healthy to have hope. Hope. (laughs) So I'm assuming because they needed their own camp, it wasn't really that much more progressive. Mm. Well, they hoped the North would be more progressive, but as far as camps were concerned, especially where people were sleeping over, it wasn't. Oh, yeah. Uh, White summer camps didn't want black campers, no matter how bushy their families were. So Dr. William DeBerry decided there needed to be a camp for his kids and others like them, and he bought some land and he started one. So what was this camp like? It was big. It was sprawling. It was about uh, 70, 75 acres. Wow. There were about 30 buildings, which were like, you know, campers' cabins where a bunch of kids would stay. It was on the edge of a big lake that went mm. through that part of the state, and it had its own island. Atwater apparently thought black kids should be water safe well before that was a thing, so everybody had to learn to swim. That sounds so dope. <laughs> yeah, I want to do it right now. People really loved it. I talked to Susan Tweedy Carter, who lives about an hour outside L.A. She's second generation at water. Wait, Tweedy? Tweedy like the bird? Yep. Childhood nickname. She sounds like my, my, one of my aunt's girlfriends. Hey, Miss Tweedy. How you doing? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> she gets that now. <laughs> um, she grew up in Rhode Island in a town where her family was the only black family Period. She says the nearest uh, black family to them was 20 miles away, which makes play dates kind of tough. So she got to go to like summertime Wakanda for like two weeks. And then she yes, out yes, that. yes. That's exactly right. That's how she thought of it. Huh. I ended up meeting some lovely people and my memories are all good. My experience of being with black people that certainly as a child, you feel safe. So Tweety is swimming and hiking and, you Plant know, I'm, I'm, yeah, right, <laughs> which you don't know how to do. No. Anyway, your card uh, has been yanked. back to Tweety. <laughs> um, yeah. And in addition to like the regular campy stuff, they had lessons in black history and culture because oh. that was part of the mission. And these parents thought, you know, you need to know where you come from to know where you're going, blah, 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 blah. Um Joyce Gant grew up in New Jersey, and she remembers the beginning of every day at camp very clearly. Once you heard that bugler going, 
That was it. He had to get up. <laughs> a bugler. So there, it's like Boy Scout camp. You <laughs> yes, know, they had right. a guy who got up and and so you know they they blow this bugle and then they would line up to pledge allegiance to the flag. Then they had breakfast and they were off for full day camp stuff. We had various activities. I know there was dance class, like ballet. There was tennis lessons. I don't recall horseback, but we did have boating, you know. We had canoeing. Really rock contests. This sounds like camp for kids that have money. Yeah, it does. Like Jack and Jill kids. (laughs) (laughs) We'll discuss this with you later. Oh, uh, shade, though. Um, Yes. Joyce Gant says that she and her best friend went to Atwater together Mm -hmm. and that they both came from blue-collar families in New Jersey. And she says she kind of thinks their status was fairly unique. Mm -hmm. They didn't really talk about it there. And she said everybody got along with everybody else. They were really nice. But she said that she realized that she was different from a lot of her campmates when she heard a lot of them talking about where they were going on vacation next. So Atwater was sort of part of their summer vacation, but then they were going on to Martha's Vineyard. Uh, they were, they were going to Europe summer. with their parents. Or they, they, were, they had the whole summer off, and Joyce yeah. was going home. That's crazy. So I'm guessing, you know, like a lot of places, once desegregation comes along, one of the sort of consequences of that is that black institutions no longer have the pool they have, right, because people then have other options. So what exactly happened with Camp Atwater? Well, kind of the same thing. You know, the numbers of campers started to decline in the mid to late 60s because other camps were slowly desegregating. Joyce Gant went to Atwater for three years, and then she stopped. Hmm. No, I think what happened was that camps started opening up more closer to home. So it was easier for the parents. You know, you didn't have to take a six-hour drive to get your kid to camp. You could, right. you know, do an hour away, two hours away. Joyce actually went to an integrated camp, but she says after Camp Atwater, it was kind of like, eh. Yeah. <laughs> um, she loved her Atwater years. Yeah, but, like, one of the things that happens with integration is, like, you end up being... For a lot of kids end up being, like, the black kid in their, you know, mostly white high school, whatever it is, right? Mm-hmm. And it might be, like, this two-week respite where you get to be around other people. You know what I mean? That's uh, exactly what Tweety said. Yeah. You know, she, she was the only one in uh, most of her classes. And then you get to Atwater. And even though she didn't know the kids necessarily, mm-hmm. it's like, oh, my God. And uh, she said it was just a terrific feeling to be with people that kind of knew knew you even though they didn't know you. Are there other Camp Atwaters that are around? There, uh, Atwater is certainly the oldest and first black accredited camp. Atwater did see a decline in campers for several years, but now, interestingly, as it heads towards its 100th year, registration is up again. Oh. So they're really thinking that the need, even though there are integrated alternatives, the need for a camp at water still persists. Thank you, KGB. You're welcome. After the break, if you're adventuring in the sun, we're going to tell you why you have to be careful. And if you're hiding out from the sun and doing all kinds of things with chemicals to stay light, we're going to tell you why you have to take heed. Stay with us. Support for Code Switch and the following message come from Fracture. Fracture turns your favorite digital memories into meaningful photo decor by printing them directly on glass. Handmade in Florida. 
Save 15% on your first order by visiting FractureMe.com switch. Support also comes from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. In 1980, with a few thousand dollars and used dairy equipment, Ken Grossman founded Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Ken's award-winning ales propelled him from home brewer to craft brewer. Today, Ken and his family still own 100% of the company, one of the most successful independent craft breweries in America. More at SierraNevada.com. Gene. Shireen. Code switch. Man, Shireen, all this talk of, you know, heat and summertime and camps, I just want to I just want to go outside. Let's just go to the beach, lather myself in some yes. oil, you know what I mean? Grab some ice cream. Shout out to Salenti. Yes. So sexual. <laughs> yeah, I, I would love to be on the beach right now getting my tan on. Your tan <laughs> on. <laughs> Excuse me, guys? <laughs> is that Leah? Hello, Leah. I don't know because I'm in L.A. Hi. Sounds like Leah. It is me, Leah. <laughs> Um, I just felt like I had to say something when I heard you uh, talk about getting a tan. What's what's wrong with tanning? Why don't you want us to get be tanned, Leah Danella, our teammate here on Cold Switch? I just I worry that you two might be planning to go outside in the hot summer sun without proper protection, and that really concerns me. So uh, I thought it might be helpful to hear a listener question that has to do with your uh, ideas of fun. Hi, Code Switch. My name is Liz Mitchell, and I'm from New York. My question is about race and summertime skincare. I'm biracial, and my black family don't use sunscreen. If anything, they use oil at the beach. My white mom has always been all about sunscreen. I used to be like, I got melanin, I'm fine. But my white grandpa died of skin cancer, and since then, I felt like I'm inviting the cancer into my body whenever I step outside, and that I'm destined for an equally unpleasant demise. So, sorry to be grim, but I'd love to hear other people of color's thoughts and practices around skincare and skin cancer. Thanks. <sighs> Wait, is she light-skinned? We don't know this. Well, actually, it doesn't really matter if she is or if she isn't. Why not? Uh, I'm the nice, deep, Listen in, brown. Jean Demby. The truth is, skin cancer can affect people of all skin tones. And to explore that a little bit, I want to introduce you to a woman named Jackie Smith. She's a child of the sun like me. She's, yes, (laughs) child of the sun. And uh, she also thought that she didn't need to wear sunscreen. And that was something that she heard ever since she was a little kid Mm -hmm. on a trip to Disney World when she was in eighth grade. And one of my friends looked at me and she was like, oh my gosh, you have a sunburn. And I said, I remember I said to her, I said, I'm black, I don't sunburn. And she was like, well, look at your nose. It's red, it's shiny, and it's going to peel because it's a sunburn. Jackie is a relatively dark-skinned black woman. um, And she said she learned growing up in school that she was not at risk for skin cancer. But she's been diagnosed with melanoma twice. What? You know, I remember the first time hearing when the doctor came back and they did a biopsy and they said it was melanoma. And the first thing I said was, but I'm not a fair-skinned, middle-aged Caucasian woman, because that's what had been drilled into to my head. So Jackie, she said the first time she was diagnosed, she was a senior in college. And she, she told me that right around the time all of her friends were starting their lives, getting jobs, going to move off into different places, she felt like all of her options were just suddenly shut off to her. Because of cancer. Mm-hmm. By the time my d- melanoma was actually diagnosed, it was already stage three. So it had traveled from the skin level and was in the lymph nodes. And at stage three, there's maybe a 
60% chance of you living five years, and it decreases with the amount of lymph nodes that it, it travels through. And so, I mean, I think this is telling because I went to the doctor consistently to try and figure out what's going on. I had this lump growing, and I was told, well, you're young, you're fine. Of course, she was not fine. Mm. Um, And what happened to Jackie actually points to a larger trend, which is that even though black people are a lot less likely to develop skin cancer than white people and other light-skinned people, they're much more likely to die from it. Um, Oh, my God. For all the big structural reasons that we were talking about? Exactly. Mm. One of the big reasons is that um, they're often diagnosed at way later stages. Like Jackie was. Exactly. Um, And that could be because we black people don't think of ourselves as being at risk so we don't get checked out Mm -hmm. um, or check ourselves and it could also be because there are a lot of doctors who don't think that black people fit the profile of a skin cancer patient so they're not expecting to see it and Jackie says that that's really bad. Because you start to wonder you know I was someone who was very vocal and kept going back and at one I just I didn't care if I was a bother to my physicians, and I questioned my doctors when I didn't feel that they were doing as much as they could or should. Well, what if there's someone who isn't as secure or or would rather say, okay, well, if you say it's nothing, I'll believe it. It sounds like a weathering episode all over again about how black women will be like, hey, this is something, I think there's something wrong, and medical professionals will just wave them off. Exactly. It happens with so many different kinds of diseases and conditions, and skin cancer is no exception. So Jackie says that black people, brown people, young people, anyone who thinks they don't need sunscreen, wear sunscreen. Check your entire body for any suspicious moles or lumps and go to the doctor and get checked out. She's doing a campaign right now called the Get Naked Campaign, so there's a big video of her in Times Square in New York City, uh, a picture of her naked being like, protect against skin cancer. And Um, She's really excited because there aren't often dark-skinned black people doing campaigns like that. So Mm -hmm. it's really cool to have that in such a public space. And she wants it as a reminder because she says skin cancer is a really big deal. You know, people say, oh, melanoma, you just have a mole removed. And then I show them, like, no, okay, here's what I had. I have an 8-inch scar from my surgery. They removed every single lymph node in my pelvic and groin region. I have a bigger scar around that from radiation. I had to give up two years of my life. I had to inject myself weekly with interferon. Because of that, you know, I have weakness and I have cognitive. My memory isn't as sharp as it used to. I developed lymphedema in my right leg. You know, like I just last month had a lymph node transplant where they removed lymph nodes from my side and put them into my ankle. And so all of this is from a cancer that had I known I could have perhaps prevented it. I would definitely have just worn sunscreen. I'm never going outside again. Never. Just. Oh, Jackie. Thank you SPF for sharing your million. story. Thank you, Thanks, Jackie. Thanks, Leah and Jackie. Thanks, guys. Bringing the truth. All right, Jean. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about something else for a second. Okay. Not all of us are basking in that hot summer sun. In fact, there are a lot of people, and I'm related to some of them, who will do anything to avoid the sun in the summer months. I'm talking wide-brimmed hats, long sleeves, gloves, SPF 100, 
all the things. And not not just to avoid skin cancer, right? Not just to avoid skin cancer, not just to avoid wrinkles. There's another reason, and we're going to talk all about that with some help from Aleli Mae Vuelta. She's a former Code Switch intern who's now a producer at Vox, and she did a video for Vox all about skin lightening. Hey, Aleli. Hey, guys. Tell us, what was your first introduction to skin lightening products? When I first had skin whitening products, I think I was about 15 or 16 years old. Mm -hmm. It was my first time going to the Philippines with my mother. And we would go shopping, but a lot of the times she just wanted to go straight to the skin whitening aisle. And that's when I first started using them, or at least was introduced to them because... You know, my mom would buy them all cheap in the Philippines and then bring them back, and then we'd have them for, like, a good year. So what kind of stuff was in that box? Like, what kind of products? Um, So it would range from just, like, the papaya soaps to skin whitening deodorant to, like, my mom's, like, expensive um, glutathione pills, which are, like, supposed to slow down, like, the melanin production in your skin so that you look lighter. Yeah, it was like some a lot of stuff in there. When you were in the Philippines that time with your mom and she was taking you down these aisles, what was she saying to you? Like, oh, Alele, wouldn't it be great if you used these products and your skin got lighter? Like, how did she, what was, what was her pitch to you? Oh, I mean, my mom is fairly light-skinned. Like, she gets um, confused for being, like, Chinese or Vietnamese all the time when I'm with her. And so she was just like, oh, like if you buy these products or if we get some skin whitening products in you, you'll be as light as me. And it, it's like that was like a privilege to be as light as her. And that's something that was like weird because I look up to my mother, but also like, why can't I just be brown? And like there were other things that she would say to me like, oh, you used to be so light when you were young, but you played too much in the sun. Mm-hmm. And that's also a phrase like I would hear growing up a lot, like stay out of the sun, Alele, stay out of the sun. Oh, yeah. I-, I heard that multiple times from my Puerto Rican side of the family. And, you know, now you're woke. <laughs> <laughs> And you've done this video for Vox, which was all about this, you know, what mm-hmm. what's up with skin lightening and why do we do this to ourselves? And you dug into the skin lightening industry. How big is this industry? Give us a sense. So in 2015, according to a report from Global Industry Analyst, um, skin whitening was about $10 billion. Wow. And by 2024, it's supposed to grow, like triple that to billion. And that number alone is really big. But if you think about it, I think that just counts towards like legal sales. And we're not counting like the under the table buying products at swap meets and beauty salon sales. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. A couple years ago, I went when I went to Ghana to visit. One of the first things that jumped out to me was a billboard uh, in Accra. Um, for a skin lightening cream, like, you know, which is mm. sort of remarkable. And it's in a country where in West Africa, where everyone is like, you know, it's deep chocolate, chocolate color, right? Like, um, is it safe to say that these products are um, sort of the, they're the most popular in places that like have some colonial past? I know the market is really huge in India. Um, it was like $496 million in mm. India alone in 2009. And 
you know, colonization definitely had a big influence on skin whitening. But skin whitening has honestly been around like for a long time, like before colonization. And colonization just definitely reinforced that even more. You know, if you had light skin, it just meant that you were rich, that you were not, not working. In the field. You didn't have to. Yeah. Yeah. You didn't have to be getting tan from working in the sun. So you say that there are all these harmful psychic effects of colorism. Um, but in the video, you also point out that people who are darker skinned, women who are darker skinned, face all of these sort of structural consequences, too. They get discriminated against in all these ways. Can you talk about some of those? Yeah. So I read this study and women who were lighter skinned, they would make more money. They would find husbands more often than darker skinned women. And Mm -hmm. I remember reading a study from 2011 that lighter skinned black women in prisons would receive 12 percent less jail time than their darker skinned counterparts. Wow. Can we talk about those, like, skin-whitening commercials? Yes. I love white. White is clean. Oh, my God. Those were so fun to look through. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Like, what are, So what's happening in these commercials? Okay, so there's, like, a very general theme. So Fair and Lovely is, like, a very famous um, skin-whitening brand in India. Fair and lovely and fair and lovely. <laughs> and their commercials are always having women who are super sad, very depressed. Either either they can't find love or they can't find the job. I realized that the obstacle to obtain my dream job was my skin. Discover Fair and Lovely Multivitamin with four essential... So then, you know, to make themselves better and more beautiful so that they can find a man, so that they can find a job, you know, they turn to skin whitening products. And... In the end, it's like, wow, I'm super light-skinned, and now I can conquer the world. So girls, get glow, get glow, get glow. Fair and lovely face wash. But there's a grain of truth in that with the studies that you were <laughs> quoting, right? Like, they can't find a man, and they can't get a job. Yeah. It's, it sucks. So, Elaylee? Yes. Where are you going to lay out in the sun this summer? Oh, this is interesting. Like, I think last week I just went to Rockaway Beach in New York City. Mm -hmm. But I still felt self-conscious about sitting in the sun. Like, I still felt like... Really? Wow. Yeah. I mean, like, I love my skin tone. I love being brown. But I even talked about this with other people, like, who now realize also, you know, being brown is okay. But, like, sometimes they even feel worried sometimes um like it's just so ingrained in you like there are times where i've uh left home and like think about oh should i have brought an umbrella with me and i'm like nah it's, it's okay alaylee what's the song giving you life the song giving me life right now is ape shit by the carters uh. gotta get that vitamin d <laughs> <laughs> Give me the ball, give me the ball, take a top shift. Call my girls and put them all on a spaceship. Hang one night when you say I'll make you famous. Hey, you ever seen the stage going ape shit? All right, y'all, that's our show. Please follow us on Twitter. We're at NPR Code Switch. We want to hear from you. Email us at codeswitch at npr.org. You can always send your burning questions about race with the subject Ask Code Switch. You probably already subscribed to the podcast. 
But if you don't, you should do so wherever fine podcasts can and be And tell all your friends. Yeah, tell your people, man. Like, yes. put, put us on. Leah Danella produced this episode. She did. With help from our intern, Angelo Bautista. And it was edited by Sammy Ennigan. Shout out to the rest of the Coasters fam. Karen Gertrude Bates, Adrian Florido, Maria Paz Gutierrez, Steve Drummond, Kat Chow, and Walter Ray Watson. I'm Gene Demby. And I'm Shireen Marisol Maraji. Be easy, y'all. Get brown in the sunshine. Get down in the sunshine. Don't forget to wear your sunscreen. Because it's important. <laughs> Have a safe holiday. Peace. Ever find yourself saying, that happened this week? Us too. All the time. I'm Tamara Keith, host of the NPR Politics Podcast, where we follow the political twists and turns and break down what it all means. Find us on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts.